welcome to Tea and Tattle, a podcast featuring inspiring conversations with creative women around the world. I'm your host, Miranda Mills, and this week I'm joined by the author, Sonia Velton, to discuss Sonia's debut novel, Blackberry and Wild Rose. Set in Spitalfields, London in the 18th century, Blackberry and Wild Rose is told from the perspective of two very different female protagonists whose lives intersect and who come to know each other's secrets. Sarah Kemp is rescued from a brothel by Esther Thorell, the wife of a Spitalfield silk weaver. Sarah becomes Esther's maid and both women's lives become more and more involved in the beautiful silks being spun and the men who create them. I so enjoyed reading Blackberry and Wild Rose and I found it fascinating to learn more about the history of the Huguenot silk weavers who settled in Spitalfields. Sonia's book brought this area of London alive for me and partly inspired my new newsletter, London by the Book, in which I explore an area of London through a work of fiction each month. Later this week, I'll be sending out the first newsletter, which is on Blackberry and Wild Rose and the parts of Spitalfields the book describes. I've put a link to the newsletter in the show notes for anyone who would like to sign up to receive it, but you could also go to tinyletter.com forward slash Miranda's bookcase. I so enjoyed chatting about Sonia's book with her today and learning more about the inspiration behind the story. Let's get started with the show. Hello, Sonia. Thanks so much for being on Tea and Tattle today. Hi, Miranda. It's my absolute pleasure. Well, I've been really looking forward to our chat because I really loved your book, Blackberry and Wild Rose. I thought it was such an incredible story. So I've been really looking forward to talking about it with you. Oh, thank you. But before we get into really discussing the book, would you just tell me a bit about how it all began? I mean, what was your path to becoming a writer like? I think you were a lawyer first. Is that right? Yes, so I trained as a solicitor in a big corporate firm and I qualified into their banking department and I absolutely hated it. I found it soul destroying. Um, So then I moved across to another firm into their newly formed human rights and discrimination unit. Mm -hmm. And so I then carved out a practice in discrimination law, basically. And I worked for a lot of trade union clients, a lot of individuals um, doing contentious employment really race to sex discrimination so although I was much happier doing that I still didn't really feel that the law was um, the right thing for me I Mm. considered moving across to journalism but after a lot of soul searching I sort of realized that I I wanted to write um, and I wanted to write a book Um, so that's when it all started really (laughs) Well, I sympathise because I only did the GDL before realising that the life <laughs> of a solicitor really wasn't for me. I've got to see rather later, yeah. <laughs> well, I definitely did consider, yes, going down that route, um, but I decided I wanted a much more creative career, so <laughs> sort of happily didn't go too far. But how did you set about becoming a writer then when when did you first get the idea for Blackberry and Wild Rose 
Well, at the time, I was living in East London in Bethnal Green, and I spent a lot of time in Spitalfields, um, you know, on a Sunday walking through the market and that kind of thing. And I was just absolutely captivated by the Georgian architecture there. And I would walk down the streets and I would look up at those tall Georgian houses and I would see what I now know to be the long lights at the top um, mm. built into the uh, attic space. And they were huge windows, I found out, that enabled the 18th century silk weavers to weave for as long as possible during the day um, because there was lots of light up there because of these huge windows. And I think from there, I just started researching the area and it spoke to me on so many levels because, as I say, that I, I was a discrimination lawyer. So I was fundamentally interested in the Huguenot immigration into the East End. Uh, so that they, they were, the Huguenots were um, Calvinists, uh, Protestants in France, and mm. they moved across into Spitalfields um, during the late 17th and 18th century because of persecution in France. And so from an a immigration discrimination point of view, I mm. was interested in that community. Uh, and then I found out that there was a lot of industrial conflict in the area, basically between the master silk weavers and their journeymen. And it was the journeymen silk weavers who formed our early trade unions. And because of my hmm. trade union background, I was interested in that. Uh, and then I think the icing on the cake was walking down Princelet Street and seeing this blue plaque on the corner house. Uh, saying that Anna Maria Garthwaite had lived there and she was the foremost silk designer in 18th century Spitalfields. And mm. I just thought, wow, you know, this is a woman, a woman who has basically come to dominate a very male-dominated industry um you know in the 18th century and I just found her totally inspiring and it is Anna Maria Garthwaite who very loosely inspired um my protagonist Esther Thorrell. Yes I found that so interesting when I read a bit about the background to your book and I I mean I love wandering around East London and Spitalfields area and I think my imagination's been really caught by those beautiful Georgian houses like you said and it was so wonderful to read your book and to get a bit of a background to the history of that area but before we discuss it a little bit further would you mind reading an extra? from Blackberry and Wild Rose. I'd be delighted. Um, so this isn't the beginning. This is a little scene uh, between Esther Thorrell, who is the wife of the master silk weaver, and her new lady's maid, Sarah. Um, and Esther has basically rescued Sarah from working for Mrs. Swan in the brothel. And I've chosen this extract because... It just gives a little bit of a taste of their relationship and their dynamic within the household is, is very fundamental to the book. So I thought it was a, a good introduction. Lovely. So this is Sarah's perspective. It is the job of a lady's maid to make her mistress as fair as her God-given assets will allow. My own mistress had a bewildering array of daubs and ointments on her dressing table. 
It was she who was a respectable one, but the vase of paints, creams and patches she owned could have come straight from a harlot's toilet. Indeed, their house seemed full of contradictions. They were supposed to be Calvinists, Puritans almost, yet their home was full of wealth. It scattered the mantle with silver trinkets and lined the walls with wood panelling from floor to ceiling, painted tasteful shades of grey and palest okra. I asked her once whether such a comfortable life sat well with the austerity of the master's religion. She replied that wealth earned with a good heart through honest toil was always godly. I was glad to hear that, if only for the sake of the girls at Mrs Swan's. One morning I came into her room and she pulled the cloth cap from her head and sat at her dressing table waiting. The sight of her hair uncoiled down her back was a silent summons, so I placed the clean linens I was carrying in the cupboard and stood behind her. She had become particularly concerned about her appearance of late, even while at home, and I watched her reflection in the mirror as she drew her teeth over her lips to redden them. Mrs Swan would have called Madame an unusual beauty and put her in front of the widest clientele possible in the hope that at least some would find charm in her angular limbs and the freckled imperfection of her pale skin. Fortunately, once the powder was on, no man would know the difference. That's enough, Sarah, she exclaimed among genteel little coughs as I dusted over her face. But you can still see them, madam, I said. See what? She sounded hurt. Nothing, I mumbled, putting the lid back on the powder and picking up the tortoiseshell brush. I busied myself untwisting the rope of hair. It was a colour of autumn, shades of red and amber turning to gold where the light caught it, and for a moment I was engrossed with brushing it so that it fanned out across her shoulders. When I looked up, she was studying me intently in the looking glass. Madam? She smiled at me benignly. You must be feeling so happy, Sarah. I looked down at her hair, finding a little knot and pulling at it. Yes, madam, I said. And I'm so happy to have helped you, she said, praising her own reflection in the mirror. To think that I have saved a woman like you from having to do what you did at Mrs Swan's. Well, she fell into a reverie, the beatific smile still on her face. I plucked at the knot. A woman like me? What had I become under the patronage of Mrs Sorrel? Even as a lady's maid, I still rose at dawn and emptied her chamber pot. I bathed and dressed her and looked after her clothes and wigs. For this, I was promised a crown a week and given a room at the top of the house, which she made me share with the scullery maid. It was two yards wide and three yards long. In it, there was a bed and a washstand. Only one floor below, her bed was stuffed with feathers, while mine was stuffed with straw. She drew linen up to her chin at night, while I lay under a rough coverlet. Only the water we splashed on our faces was the same. This was the life she had given me, and she expected me to be grateful. So it is when you exist only to serve another. It is an enviable transition from whore to lady's maid, but both are a life of forced intimacy, serving the needs of others. Madam, you're hurting me. Her eyes were wide and surprised in the glass as they flicked up to mine. I must have been tugging at that not too hard, imagining the bronze finery of her hair turning withered like autumn leaves and falling to the floor. I left the tangle and went back to brushing. 
stroking the hair from her face so that she could see herself more easily. And she took full advantage of that, staring at her image as if pride were not a deadly sin. I had not realised what vanity lay behind that godly exterior. How gratifying it must have been for her to glance up from studying her own delicate features and see me standing behind her, as if her face was the picture and mine the dull, sturdy frame. Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you. And I found it so interesting because, I mean, as you said earlier, the world of the Huguenot silk weavers was a very male-dominated world. But I really enjoyed how you chose to write from the perspective of two women sort of caught up within this world, Um, two very different women, Esther and Sarah. What made you decide to have two narrators for your story? Um, Well, there were a number of of reasons for that. Um, I think the first reason was I I enjoyed writing it that way because it it keeps the story fresh for me and I would alternate their chapters or sort of one day doing one. And then when I returned the next day, it was was a little fresher because I could then switch to um, the other perspective. Uh, The other reason is that Basically, there was a lot going on in Spitalfields that I wanted to explore, um, and some of that was the plight of the journeyman weavers. Now, a lady like Esther Thorrell wouldn't have had much, if any, day-to-day interaction with those journeymen. So Sarah provides a bridge, if you like, between those two worlds, um, and Sarah is, enables us to access the journeyman's world in a way that um, Esther wouldn't be able to. And I suppose fundamentally, what I, what, what I enjoy most is looking at perspective. That's what really interests me in mm. fiction. Um, and I, I just enjoyed playing with the way that each woman perceives the other. Um, mm. And that sort of gives an extra dimension to their relationship. Yes, it really did. And to the reader's insights into each of their characters as well. And I mean, there are great foils for each other, too. And I thought how much your novel was really a novel of contrasts. I mean, Esther is so different from Sarah. They're a real contrast, but also there's the sort of piety of the Huguenots' religion against uh, Sarah's background in a brothel and, again, the wealth of the silk merchants and the master silk weavers against the poverty of the journeymen. And I thought you brought all of those contrasts out so well in your book. Oh, thank you. Yes, I I absolutely agree. It it is... um, absolutely designed to be a book of contrast and to uh, explore you know the 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 opposites and hypocrisies um, that were present in 18th century society um, you know and, and still are obviously to to an extent but um, certainly they're playing with the way that we each character sees herself and then mm-hmm. seeing her character from the other woman's perspective um, yeah was was um was something that I found interesting. Yes, absolutely. And did you enjoy writing one particular voice more over the other? Um, that's always a difficult question because <laughs> it's sort of like choosing which child you like best. Um, uh, I think 
I, I did quite like Sarah's point of view because she's um, certainly the, the most irreverent and, and rude about things. She's just able, she's less constrained by society and um, the expectations that society um, might put on someone. So she's able to be that little bit more free with her comments. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I, I, I felt I could have a little bit of fun with her. Yeah, she's definitely uh, quite witty, I think, in many of her remarks. And she has a lot more street smarts, so to speak. I mean, I think Esther's a lot more naive. Uh, but I really enjoyed both women. I really enjoyed both their voices. But going back a bit to the history of this period, I mean, we've spoken about the silk masters, merchants, journeymen, for people who haven't read your book yet, would you just explain a little about who those people were and the difference between them? Sure. So the master silk weavers were generally fairly wealthy and high status. They would have probably had an apprenticeship, so they would have learned to how to weave themselves. But at this stage in their career, they wouldn't do a lot of the weaving day to day, if any, actually. So they were businessmen, basically. They would commission a silk design. Uh, they would buy in the silk from the silk man. And then they would put the job out to journeyman weavers. And it was the journeyman weavers who were skilled. They'd done an apprenticeship and they learned the craft of weaving and they would actually do the job they would do the weaving themselves um, usually in weavers cottages outside the master's home and then once they'd completed the job they would give it back to the master weaver um, depending on how high status the master was sometimes the slightly less affluent masters would have a journeyman weaver actually working in their house in the garret um, Probably not so much in Spittle Square and in Fournier Street and, and those sort of houses because the journeymen, the master weavers were wealthier. But in smaller houses like in Wilkes Street, quite possibly the journeyman lived or at least worked in the master weaver's house. Then once the silk was completed, that's where the mercer came in and the silk mercers would then be involved in actually selling the silk on, um, on a retail basis, if you like. Um, mm. into shops or, or would sell it directly um, some of those old houses in artillery lane you can see almost a shop front you know in the ground floor so they may have sold direct to the public mm. and what was so special about the Huguenot silk what made it so prized um, it was very very complex um, and uh, woven with extreme skill so originally um, a lot of the Huguenots that uh, came into Spitalfields during the 17th and 18th centuries came from Lyon and Lyon was a, a, a world centre for um, silk making so the, the level of skill that those Huguenot immigrants had was immense and of course when they moved to Spitalfields they brought that skill with them uh, and so Spitalfields then became a world centre and um, the Spitalfields silks became every bit as prized as the original Lyon silks and mm. they were exported around the world especially to the new world so 
you know, you might find a portrait of a, a lady in Boston <laughs> and she'll be wearing a Spitalfield silk. Mm. That's incredible. And I mean, I'd love to find out a bit more about Anna Maria Garthwaite, who is the woman who inspired your character, Esther, a little bit. Would you tell me a bit more about her and why you found her such an inspiring figure from history? Sure. Um, The frustrating thing about Anna Maria Garthwaite is not much is known about her personal life. Her legacy is very much in the silk designs um, and patterns that she left behind. Um, And we don't know a lot about her as an individual. She actually didn't even come to London till she was in her early 40s. She was a lifelong spinster. She never married. She lived with her sister and their female ward. And so far as I'm aware, she wasn't taught how to design silk. And this Mm -hmm. is one of the things that I find most inspirational about her. Because at a time when a lot of silk designers in Spitalfields were master weavers themselves, or at least had a male patron or some formal instruction, here was a woman who was already in her 40s, who who hadn't really been taught the craft and the technicalities of silk design. Um, So she was basically a real self-starter and self-taught. And she went on to draw over a thousand um, beautiful watercolour silk designs, uh, which were then made into silks, many of which remain uh, to this day in the Victoria and Albert Museum, both the silks and also her original watercolour designs. And the reason I found her so inspiring was, firstly, of course, her success. She was the mm. foremost silk designer in Spitalfields. It wasn't just mm. that she held her own. She she literally was um, the silk designer in Spitalfields. And she was also credited with um, what they call bringing the artistry of painting to the loom. That is that previously silk pattern designs had been quite sort of geometric, bold designs. And she sort of almost revolutionised them into delicate meanders of of, um, flowers and floral patterns and Mm. just gave them a sort of artistry and a beauty and grace that perhaps had been uh, rather lacking before. I think the one thing that I'm slightly nervous of is saying that Esther Thorrell is based on her just because... um, (laughs) Sometimes I ask myself whether Anna Maria Garthwaite would be pleased to know that she had inspired um, my book and and my protagonist. And whilst I'm sure she would be flattered that, you know, hundreds of years um, after her career, she she, uh, was still inspiring people. I think she might have raised an eyebrow at the goings on in the Thorrell household because uh, certainly there is no suggestion on my part that uh, her personal life was anything like Esther's. (laughs) No, but it it certainly adds a lot of spice to your tale, but Esther is very much her own character and person too. But yeah, I just find um, the history of that really fascinating and it seems that we probably owe 
quite a lot still to Anna Maria Garthwaite, even from the beautiful floral designs that we enjoy really without even thinking now um, with the clothes that we wear. But I also read that the name of your book, Blackberry and Wild Rose, was actually taken from one of Garthwaite's designs. And I think you can see a lot of her designs at the V&A. And I was wondering if Blackberry and Wild Rose was one that was able that you're able to see there. Yeah. So um, when I, I I've been visiting the V&A for quite a few years, and on one of my earliest trips there, they had a lot of silk patterns out. Do you know um, how they used to display posters in shops like Athena's years yes. ago? Um, you know, you could sort of like just browse through them yes. you know, in wooden frames. And it was there that I saw Blackberry and Wild Rose. And on more recent visits, they've changed the format and that's no longer available. It certainly it wasn't um, when I went to see them. And also I'm slightly nervous of saying that Black Boo and Wild Rose was actually one of her designs because uh, the novel had a different title before it was published and we were brainstorming for a new title and I was just okay, what can I call it? And then I just went through some of my old notes and I remember that day in the V&A that I had come across one particular pattern and I had just been really captivated by its name, Blackberry and Wild Rose. I just thought it had such a lovely ring to it. And so I'd, I'd written it down in my notes and I'd never forgotten it. Mm. And so I thought, oh, yeah, you know, it, it should be about the silk design. It's, you know, um, and that would be a good title for it. But what I didn't do is note down whether it actually was one of Anna Maria Garthwaite's designs or another Spitalfield silk designer. So it is conceivable that it was another um because of course it, w- there, it wasn't only her there were other Spitalfields mm. silk designers at the time so it, it definitely is an actual pattern but mm. whether it's definitely hers it, in all likelihood it was because almost all of the ones I was looking um at were okay but you just can't be absolutely you, sure <laughs> that's you a shame can't go that black broom while rose no <laughs> unless it, the it, they can find it for me which yeah. i'm only too delighted if they could oh i know well it is a lovely title and i mean the the cover is exquisite as well but i love the title but that is a shame that you can't view the the silks and the silk designs so easily at the vna anymore you you can you can see um you can see the silks. It's just that they don't have them in that sort of scroll through format that that um, I saw them. They are um, there is a display of them and sample silks. But what you can do is request to see Anna Maria Garthwaite's original watercolors, and you have to make a special request to do that. And then they will take you into um, a different room with a special appointment, and then they will bring out the books for you, and you can have a look at the actual watercolors um, that. She she, she produced but that's something that you have to ask to do um, otherwise certainly the Spitalfield silks are on display and um, it's just not that that particular one as far mm. as I know but yeah. um, oh well that's wonderful to know I mean your book has definitely made me want to go to the V&A and, and look at some of these silks so I'm glad that I can at least um, see quite a few of them um, yes. that that's really lovely and I mean in the book Esther learns a bit about uh, silk designing and she uses her own watercolors in the end to 
create silks and I really loved reading about the process in doing that and I wondered how much you found out and sort of had any hands-on experience of the silk weaving process did you do any weaving yourself or did you see people doing it to help you to write the book um, this was one of the hardest parts of writing the book. And I think that is partly because I wasn't able to see uh, weaving being done. And I really, really wish that I could have done. I think there are some sort of maybe working looms that they tend to be doing more plain weave. The, uh, to my knowledge, there isn't anywhere you can view figured silk being made. And figured silk is the highly detailed, intricate patterned silk rather than the plain weaves like tabbies and velvets um, or even wool mm. um, in, in mills and woolen mills and um, that, that remain working. So I had to basically read about it. Uh, and I, I did that in um, academic uh, books that I found. Um, and also by going to the V&A and looking. So in that room that I'm talking about, mm. not only could I see the um, original watercolours, but there was some other information there you know, talking about um, more the craft of it. But I, I still, you know, I have an image in my mind of how it works. I'm, <laughs> I would love to see it, actually. I mean, being done, but I, I, I just, I, I've never had the opportunity. Well, you really brought it to life, though. I mean, I thought perhaps you had seen it done in some way because uh, you really did bring the whole process to life and, you know, clearly had some real knowledge of it. Um, so well done on doing such wonderful research. Oh, I think you actually gave me a loom and asked me to do it. Then I'd be, <laughs> I'd be quite stuck. But I can talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, finally, Sonia, at the end of my Tea and Tattle interviews, I always ask guests to give a cultural recommendation. So I'd love to hear about something you've been enjoying lately, whether it's a book or an exhibition, theatre experience, anything really. But I'd love to know about something that you would recommend. Ah, oh, well, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I actually am re reading... Um, <laughs> People probably expect that authors sit around reading very sort of literary books and things, but um, actually I love non-fiction and I really like to learn when I read. Mm. Um, and that's something actually I tried to convey a bit with, with the book that I wrote. But I'm, I'm reading Brain Food at the moment, um, uh, mm. written by Dr. Moscone. And it's all about, uh, yeah, what uh, our diet and what we eat and how that affects our brain and our ability to function and and you know our um how our brains might age and I find all that really really fascinating that's sort of a, yeah. a secret passion of mine um sort of how diet and lifestyle plays into our overall health and longevity so I am really enjoying um that at the moment it's much to the horror of my children though because uh, apparently pizza doesn't count as brain food so. <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> oh, that sounds really interesting though. I also like reading quite a lot of non-fiction, so I'll have to look out for that one. But what's next for you? Are there any upcoming books or um, events that you're able to talk about at the moment? 
Uh, sure. Well, I'm very much looking forward to doing the Faversham Literary Festival next week. Um, and uh, I've also got a few panel events um, uh, in London over the coming months and, and uh, possibly doing Birmingham Literary Festival later in the year as well. Um, all my news is on my uh, Twitter feed, which is uh, at Sonia Velton. Um, otherwise, I'm working on my second book, uh, which is contemporary, actually. Um, mm. So it's a, a departure from, uh, obviously, the subject matter of my first book, but I'm very much sticking with um, what I really enjoyed and think worked about the first book, which is um, the dual narration, two women who are intimately connected, um, although in a way that isn't immediately obvious um, in the book, unlike Sarah and Esther's relationship, which obviously is, mm-hmm. um, and also playing again with perspective about how we perceive ourselves and others. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Well, like I said, I really loved the dual narration of your first book. So I'm excited that you're continuing in a similar vein in your second. That sounds really intriguing. And so if listeners would like to keep up with your news and what's happening next for you, is Twitter the best place to find you online? Or is there anywhere else? Yes, yeah, I have just set up an Instagram account, but that's mainly to stalk my uh, 12-year-old son. Um, so I'm just, <laughs> I'm just getting that up and running. So, I, um, But uh, yes, uh, Twitter for now, um, at Sonia Velton is the best place. Okay, brilliant. Well, I'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. But thank you so much, Sonia. It's been really fascinating chatting with you today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Miranda. That's it for this episode of Tea and Tattle. Thanks so much again to Sonia for her fantastic interview. For all the relevant links, check out the show notes for this episode at teaandtattlepodcast.com forward slash home forward slash 106. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you shared it with a friend who you think would like it too, or please consider leaving a review saying why you enjoy the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, as great reviews help other people to find the show. If you'd like to get in touch, you can always drop me a line at teaandtattlepodcast at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram at both Miranda's Notebook and Miranda's bookcase. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep well, be joyful, and stay in touch.